Well, if you know anything about me by now, you will know that I am a huge Harry Potter fan. I couldn't tell you how many times I've, you know, read through the series or, or watched the movies. Um, I'm always, at any given time, at least reading one of the books. Um, do you want me on your team if you go to Harry Potter trivia? Hey, not quite yet, not quite yet. All right, cat's out of the bag. Um, but anyways, um, uh, no thank you, nope. Um, picture came a little early. Let me, fin- let me finish the story here. So, um, I love Harry Potter. The Lord needed, I, I need, knew I needed a wife who also loved Harry Potter. He brought me Madison, uh, and so together we're super nerdy. Uh, and we don't watch a lot of TV or a lot of movies, but if we are watching a movie, there's a 75% chance that it's going to be Harry Potter. And so the seventh movie came out November 2010, and as you can tell, I was excited about it. Um, and I was excited and I was prepared. So I had purchased my tickets ahead of time for the midnight premiere of Harry Potter. And as you can see, I had my costume picked out and ready to go. And I debated if I should show you this picture because it's kind of embarrassing, right? Um, It's also pretty awesome. I think I was 20 years old at this point. Um, Yep, yep. So um, a a few pounds heavier. Uh, I had the Justin Bieber flow going on. Um, But hey, at the end of the day, when Harry Potter came out at midnight, it found me ready. It found me awake. It found me alert. It found me dressed and prepared for action. And so, today, we get to continue in the gospel according to Luke. Uh, we see, and we, could, we can also turn, turn the picture off now. I don't, I don't want to look at it anymore from, from this angle over here. Um, thank you. Uh, today, we see that Jesus tells the crowd in the form of parables that when he returns, when he comes again, we must be ready for it. We must be awake. We must be alert. We must be dressed and prepared for Christ's second coming. And so, my big truth for today, what I want you guys to walk away knowing is this. Blessed is the one who trusts in Jesus as Messiah and who is found faithful when he returns or calls us home. And so, Go ahead, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 35 through 56. And if you, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the seats underneath you or around you. And, and as you turn there, it's just important to remember where we have come from. And so, where we've left off. Last Sunday, Zach preached on verses 13 through 34. And here, we saw that chasing riches, chasing money, chasing the world is going to leave us utterly empty. And Jesus told us that we can't take our wealth with us to the grave, and if we do, it's going to cost us our soul. And he then tells the crowds, hey, don't be anxious. Don't worry. When you are seeking the kingdom of God, God's going to take care of the rest. Pursue treasures of the kingdom, which are eternal and not temporal. And then we saw last week, verse 32, fear not, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so this verse kind of transitions us now into our passage. So we'll begin in verse 35, and we'll end at verse 48 for this first main point. Stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. 
Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and he will serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and he finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and the female servants and eat and drink and get drunk, that the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And so, as you can notice from this passage, uh, and the one that we're going to read after this, is that uh, Zach left me a harder text to preach. Uh, last week, he got to talk about not being anxious and, and not chasing wealth and money, and I get to talk about being cut into pieces and, and, and beatings, and in the next section, how Jesus came to bring division. And so, I'm just kidding, for the most part. As I studied this passage this week, I found that it's very relevant, it's very timely, and it's a good word for us, and so I'm, I'm really excited to dive in. And we're going to walk through our passage in three main points, or three big ideas, and the first one uh, is, is this, and it covers what we just read. A faithful servant of Christ will be blessed. The unfaithful will be judged. And so in this passage, we see Jesus as both servant and as judge. He instructs the crowds what they must be like if they are citizens of the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells his followers that they must be ready they must be dressed for action and always keeping their lamps burning. And you likely have a footnote on this verse, which indicates an alternate translation. And so uh, the Greek here could maybe more literally be translated as, let your loins stay girded, which is kind of an odd expression, uh, but it was one that was used a lot in Jesus' day. And so understanding the context uh, around this word in the ancient world kind of helps color the overall concept. And so back in these times, one would wear a long sleeveless tunic um, or robe. It would go down to their ankles, and you know, they might style it up a bit, put something over the top, give it some spice, give it some flavor. Um, but if you had to go to battle, or if you had to do some manual labor, it would be difficult wearing this robe that went down to your ankles. And so you don't want to trip running into battle. And so what they did is they just take all the extra material down by their legs and they'd pull it up and they'd tuck it into their belt. They would gird up their loins. And so now your legs are not constrained and you're free to, to run, free to move, free to go into battle. Now you're really ready for action here. 
And so that's the sense that we get here from Jesus, that we are to be in a constant state of readiness, and our lamps stay lit. In other words, Jesus is telling his followers to always have your sleeves rolled up, is another way to say it. And then Jesus launches into some parables. And so in verse 36, Jesus begins a parable. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And so in Jewish life, uh, weddings would go on for, for days and days and days. And if you were a servant, you wouldn't know when you were managing your master's property. You wouldn't know when he was coming home. It was likely going to be late at night sometime, in the second or third watch, perhaps. Um, and Jesus says, blessed is the servant, blessed is the one who, finds, who his master finds awake when he comes, who opens the door in the middle of the night when he knocks. And so Jesus says that when the master gets home and finds his servants faithful, that the master is actually going to himself dress for service and sit his servants at the table, have them recline while he prepares a feast for them. The master becomes the servants. And in these parables that Jesus is speaking here, they're, they're talking about Christ's coming. And I think that we're going to see that it's actually talking about the first and the second coming, because both comings are unexpected. You see, Jesus first came uh, in a lowly estate, the second person of the Trinity, born of the Virgin Mary, born to be a servant, born to die. And through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is an important theme that we see in the Gospels. And so when we trust in Christ for salvation, we belong to the kingdom. God reigns in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So in one sense, the kingdom of God is already here. But also, in another sense, it's still yet to come in its fullness, in its consummation. It's not yet fully realized until Christ returns again, a second time, when he eradicates all remaining sin and death in the world, and he establishes a new heaven and a new earth for his people to dwell with him. That's what we look forward to. That's the second coming. That's the kingdom of God fully consummated. That's our beautiful and glorious inheritance. And so like his first coming, his second coming is also going to be unexpected. It's going to come at a time of the day that you are not expecting. And he says to his followers, those to who the kingdom of God belongs to, they are to be found faithful when he comes. Those who open the door when Jesus returns, those who are found stewarding what Jesus has entrusted to them, they will be blessed. Jesus will set them at the table, and he will serve them. And then we get verses 39 and 40. And here the parable switches. It's a new parable. It's a parable inside of a parable. And it just shows from a different perspective the reality that we do not know when Christ is going to return. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus is saying that a wise homeowner stays prepared, he stays guarded. And if he knew when the thief was coming, he wouldn't leave his house. Overland had a bunch of tools and other items stolen in the last couple of weeks. If we had known when the thief was coming, we would have been here. We would have been ready for it. 
And back during Jesus' time, they didn't have the ring doorbell. And so they couldn't tell when, when thieves were approaching or Amazon was approaching. The servants had to be in a constant state of readiness. And so this second parable is just another way of reminding Jesus' followers to be ready, to be watchful, to be found faithful. Jesus' second coming will come at a time that you do not expect, like a thief comes in the night. And because of that, you must be ready. You must be dressed for action. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So let me tell you quickly, this is kind of a, a tangent, a sidebar here. Let me just tell you what it means to not be prepared and watchful. It doesn't mean obsessing over the details of the end times. First off, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and as we interpret scripture, it's important to keep theme and genre in mind. Don't press Revelation for details that Revelation never intended to give. There are many who will just waste countless precious hours just obsessing over when Christ is going to return, how he's going to return, what's going on in history right now, how do we interpret these things. They're wasting time. They're wasting precious hours of their life. There's Bible prophecy conferences all over the place. There's churches who dedicate themselves solely to teaching on the end times. And if I were to give you one piece of advice, I'd just say flee these people. Flee these groups. If someone tries to tell you when and how Jesus is going to return, remember his words here. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You don't need to predict the future. We know it. I'll tell you. Jesus will return bodily, visibly, at an hour you could not see coming. He will consummate his eternal kingdom. Sin and death shall be no more. Christians will receive glorified bodies. We will reign and dwell with Christ in the new heavens and new earth in fullness of joy and peace forever. That is our glorious future that awaits us. That is our blessed assurance. So, be prepared for his return in that you are found faithfully laboring for the kingdom of God, not wasting your time on speculation. Is it good to study Revelation? Absolutely. I actually love it. I love studying it. It's an encouragement to those who are suffering, to those who are waiting. It's an encouragement to persevere until the very end. But quickly, our study of Revelation can become elevated to the place of an Indiana Jones movie where we are trying to crack the code and I get that. I, I love those movies. I love the allure. I mean, who wouldn't want to find the ark? But that is not the intention of Revelation or other apocalyptic literature. One commentator says, eschatology, which is teaching about the future, eschatology in the Bible exists not so much to inform us of the details of the future as to prepare us to serve God faithfully today. All right, tangent over. So Peter responds to Jesus in verse 41, and he asks Jesus, hey, who is this parable for? Is it for us, your close disciple, or is it for everybody? And Jesus, he responds to Peter with a question, like he does. He says, who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all possessions. So Jesus is saying, this parable 
It's for my followers. It's those who are ready to be faithful until my return. Those who will steward what I've entrusted to them. And again, Jesus calls these servants blessed. What a sweet promise that is. And so if we think about it, if Jesus was to return tonight, and you were to stand before him, would he find you faithful? Would he find you living for his glory and his kingdom? You see, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable of a master who entrusts a large sum of money to three different servants, and he goes away for a year. He comes back, and he wants an account of how the servants stewarded his money. Two of the three did well, solid ROIs. One of them did not. And Jesus says to the ones who stewarded it well, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Is that what you are going to hear when you stand before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords? So in life right now, are you straddling the line where you have one foot in the world and you have one foot out? Are you swept up in living for the world, idolizing your career, idolizing your grades, your success, your wealth, your money? Are you living a hypocritical lifestyle where the proclamation of Jesus as Lord of your life doesn't match your actions and your decisions? Maybe you're enslaved to something, enslaved to, to pornography, enslaved to, to alcohol, to drugs. Are you pursuing Christian relationships, but it looks no different than the world's relationships, where you're indulging your sexual desires? How is Jesus going to find you when he returns or when he calls you home? How are you going to stand before him? James says in, in James chapter 4, You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Our lives are short, especially when viewed in light of eternity. We don't know when Christ is going to return. We don't know when he's going to call us home. We don't know when we're going to breathe our last. How are you going to live this life? And I'll tell you how we should. We should live this life in light of the mission that we have been given. We are entrusted with the gospel message. Jesus gave us marching orders, the Great Commission, to make disciples, to love, to serve. We are called to fruitful labor for the kingdom of God. Let's be good stewards of the remaining time that the Lord has allotted to us. Let's be found faithful servants when Jesus returns or calls us home. Because there's also a flip side to this. The unfaithful will be judged. Let's read again verses 45 to 48. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and the female servants and eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant, who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know 
and did what deserved a beating, he will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to much was entrusted, they will demand the more. So we saw that this parable is for faithful followers of Jesus. But we also see that this parable are for those who are not, who are unfaithful. This is a warning. This is a warning of the judgment that's to come, and it's hard to swallow. Here in this first example, we see a servant take power and authority for himself. He knows the master's delayed, and so he eats, he drinks, he starts to abuse the other servants in the households. This is the one who rejects Jesus, who declines the invitation when Jesus knocks at the door, who follows the ways of the world, who lives for his own little kingdom. And the result is not favorable. The master, Jesus, will come at an unexpected time. He will find the servant, and he will cut him into two and put him with the unfaithful, with the unbelievers. And so is this a literal or a figural cutting? I'm not too sure, but the next phrase kind of helps, that he will put him with the unfaithful. But really, either way, we can't miss the severity of the language that Jesus has used here. It's severe. It's hard language. Those who reject the Messiah will be judged, will be condemned, will spend eternity apart from the presence of God with no hope and no joy and no peace. That's severe warning. And we also learn that the one who knew his master's will and rejected it will be judged more severely than the one who did not know. And so here there seems to be some layer of degrees of punishment. But what's important to notice is that both the one who knew the master's will and didn't do it, and the one who didn't know the will but didn't do it, both are going to receive judgment and beating. So at the end of the day, the one who has faith in Christ for salvation is the only one who is free from this judgment and this condemnation. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. As followers of Jesus, we don't need to fear the wrath of God. We don't need to fear Jesus as the just and eternal judge. In Christ, there is no condemnation. And so Jesus finishes this parable by saying, To everyone who much is given, much will be expected. And everyone who stewards this well, to them more will be given. So we've been given so much in Christ. We've been given mercy and grace and forgiveness, eternal and abundant life, community with one another, the beauty of the local church, relationship with God through Jesus, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have joy and peace and satisfaction and contentment. The list goes on and on and on. We've been given so much. We've also been given different gifts to use and to steward for the kingdom. We all have differing levels of ability, of means, of skills. We ought to use them in service to God. As faithful followers of Jesus, let us steward all that the Lord has given to us for his glory and for his kingdom. Let us live and labor in such a way that we are ready for Christ's return. This passage warns of the coming judgment for the unfaithful. Take that seriously. But don't overlook the grand promise here. The master, Jesus, will serve the faithful. He will invite them to recline at the table, to sit back. He will prepare a feast for them. This is a beautiful and a glorious 
picture and a promise to us. The faithful servants of the Messiah will be abundantly blessed. Let us be found ready when Christ returns or when he calls us home. And it's hard to be a faithful servant. It's hard to be a follower of Jesus. We know that salvation is the free gift of God, that by grace, through faith, we are saved apart from our works. Salvation is free. But we also know that following Jesus is going to cost you. It's costly. And that leads into our second main point, or our second big idea, which is this. A decision to follow Jesus will mean division from the world. And this covers verses 49 through 53, so let me read them. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So in this section, we see Jesus as the great divider. He is the great divider. And and scholars will kind of note a theme of decision and division in the book of Luke. And I think here we see that highlighted particularly well. Those who have decided to follow Jesus will experience division from those who do not, and division from the world. Jesus first says that he came to cast fire on earth, and so it's hard to know exactly what type of fire this is. It could be like a purifying fire that kind of separates, or it could be referring to Christ's second coming and his, and his judgment. But either way, we see that something must come first, and that something is Jesus' baptism. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. And so he's not talking about his baptism when he was baptized by John the Baptist back in the beginning of Luke. And we actually know because of how uh, Jesus uses the word baptism in other places that this reference to baptism is referring to his coming, atoning death on the cross. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to do his Father's will. In John 6, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus came to seek and to save the life, seek and to save the lost, to be a ransom for many. The Father sent the Son, and the Son was willingly sent by the Father. And so throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he always had his eyes fixed on the cross. He knew that's where he was headed. Because it's at the cross and at the resurrection that salvation is accomplished for us. This was Jesus' purpose. It was his mission for coming into the world. So before the fire comes, first must come his baptism, his suffering, his death. So of course Jesus would be distressed until it's finished, until the suffering would be over. Of course he'd be distressed. But he doesn't try to avoid his mission. His face is set. He is resolved to go to the cross to save sinners like you and like me so that we would live with him forever. Jesus bears the wrath of God so that we don't have to. The debt has been paid. The punishment for our sins was poured out on him on the cross. As believers, we rejoice in this. We rejoice that Jesus was resolved to go to the cross. We rejoice that he went to the cross, that he 
paid the debt that we couldn't pay, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day. And so if you've not placed your faith in Jesus, today could be a day of salvation. When you look upon Jesus and see that he took the judgment that you deserved, he took your place. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When you place your faith in him as Lord, when you turn from the ways of the world, this salvation is yours. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We get the benefits. We get the blessings of the kingdom. Blessed is the one who trusts in Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus goes on to say, Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And so there's a lot of ways, of course, in which Jesus did bring peace on earth. Isaiah prophesies about the coming Messiah, and he says that he is called the Prince of Peace. John tells his disciples in John 14, 27, that my peace I give to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And we see in Romans 5, 1, that Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, in what way does Jesus not come to bring peace, but rather division? Well, he divides those who trust him for salvation and those who do not. He separates the followers and the faithful from the unfaithful. Following Jesus is, is the best thing that you can do with your life. The best thing. But it will cost you. It will cost you. It will divide. One commentator said that these verses remind hearers and readers that Jesus and the kingdom must take precedence over the most intimate and ultimate human social bond, the family. When Jesus first calls his disciples, this happens. In Matthew chapter 4, we read, And going on from there, Jesus saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebediah, or Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. Great is the cost of following Jesus. It will divide. It could divide family. It could divide friends. I know many who have experienced being called by Jesus, deciding to follow Jesus with their life, and then the division in the family happens. There's hostility. Family members can become hostile to you and your faith and the way that you're living your life. There's rejection. There's, there can be disappointments. And this doesn't happen just in families. It happens among friends as well. When God called me, and I decided to follow him with my whole life, I had to give up certain lifestyle pursuits. I had to give up partying and drinking and, and, and chasing girls. And as I stopped doing these things, friends left me. Friends left me. So I feel the weight of this passage. But I tell you with absolute confidence that following Jesus is so worth it. It's so, so worth it. And it's a blessing to be a part of a family when there isn't this division, right? But oftentimes there is division that, that comes. And so when you are wishy-washy with your Christianity and you only speak of it when it's beneficial to you, that won't divide. When you profess Christianity but you remain living a lifestyle of worldly pursuits, that won't divide. No, division won't happen when you don't take a stand. Living a double life won't cause your friends to abandon you because your life looks just like the rest of the world's. 
you're not going to run into this division that Jesus speaks of if you're wishy-washy. And that sounds like an encouragement, right? But let me actually warn you of this. In Revelation, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Hot water is useful. Cold water is useful. Lukewarm water is useless. Jesus warns his church. This is, this is serious. If you are not divided here and now because of your faith in Christ, you will be divided when Christ returns again and you will be placed among the unfaithful. So listen to this statement and assess it. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, born of the Virgin Mary, truly God and truly man, who lived a spotless and perfect life, who died on the cross to save sinners, who was resurrected from the grave, who ascended to heaven, who will return to judge the living and the dead, to consummate his eternal kingdom and dwell with his people who place their faith in him alone forever in fullness of joy. True or false? There is nothing that divides greater than how you answer that question and how you live in light of that question. Count the cost of following Jesus and do it because it's worth it. I know it isn't easy, but it is worth it because he is worthy. Be freed from trying to live for your own little kingdoms. Be freed from living this double life. Be swept up into something so much bigger than yourselves. Be swept up into the kingdom, living for Christ's glory. And belonging to this kingdom, again, it means living on mission in this world. You see, we are divided from the world and what the world thinks is successful and pleasurable. And yet, at the same time, we labor in the world to bring the hope of the gospel to others. We are divided from the world, and yet we love and we serve the world. We act boldly as faithful servants of Jesus to bring the gospel to the world in hopes that more and more people will make a decision to follow Jesus and to divide themselves from the world in hopes that they will also be found ready when Christ returns. And so as the gospel is preached, as the kingdom of God is preached, it forces a question. It forces us, it forces others to evaluate Jesus' claims. Is he truly the Messiah? And so this leads into our third and final main point and big idea. It's a shorter one, and it's this. A fool is one who can interpret the weather, but not the coming of the Messiah. A fool is one who can interpret weather patterns, but not the coming of the Messiah. So let's read our last remaining verses, 54 through 56. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret this present time? And so the people, if they saw a cloud coming from the west and off the Mediterranean Sea, they knew it was going to rain. If they could tell that a wind was blowing from the southwest off the desert, they knew it was going to be a toasty day. These 
these crowds were, were gifted in their ability to interpret the weather. They could probably do a better job at forecasting the weather than to our meteorologists today. No, no offense. Um, I don't know what uh, weather app you use uh, or what weather channel you tune into, but it seems like it's always wrong, you know? Especially when um, it comes to snow. Like we get these winter storm warnings, you know, 12 inches between 2 and 4 a.m., and then you wake up and there's just a light dusting and it melts at the first sign of snow. And last year it was the opposite, I, f I feel like. I feel like last year they didn't forecast snow and then you would wake up and there'd be 6 inches. And of course you're already late trying to get out the door and you have to go shovel. And for some reason it was always on a Wednesday. I don't know why that was. Um, all I have to say, though, I, I am ready for the snow. I am ready for colder weather, crisp autumn weather for snow. I love it, but after next weekend, because that's our family camp out, then it can get cold. I love it. So Jesus is telling the crowds here, hey, look, you guys can interpret the weather patterns. You know what to look for, but you can't interpret this present time. And so this present time isn't referring to a duration of time, like the duration of the sermon is far too long. We're hungry. No, it's, it's referring to a time as a season or as an opportunity. It's, it is time to move on. It is time to pay attention. You know it's time for CSU classes to start when all of a sudden Fort Collins traffic gets awful and you have to be way more cautious of a driver. You know when that time comes. It's, it's happened in the last few weeks. And so when Jesus says you don't understand this present time, what he's saying is that you can't recognize this moment in salvation history. You do not see that the Messiah is here now. You see, people came to Jesus to hear his teaching, to be healed of diseases, to have demons cast out. Many of the people just came demanding signs. Some believed, but yet a lot did not. And even through Jesus' teaching and his ministry, the crowds, the crowds could not see the signs that announce the kingdom of God has arrived. And the Messiah, the king of the kingdom, is here. He is standing right in front of them. I think the crowds are, are too callous. They're too set on pursuing the things of the world, too focused on building up their own little kingdoms. They didn't even notice what treasure stands right in front of them. And here's the thing. They didn't want to. They didn't want to. They had the ability to. They could read the weather signs. They could tell when the storm was coming. But here with Jesus, they didn't want to see him as the Messiah. Whether they were too set on pursuing the things of this world and they didn't want to give up them, to give up their lifestyle, or whether they were Pharisees and were too set on their own religious understandings of, of the law and how the Messiah was to come, either way, they did not want to embrace the signs that pointed to Jesus as the Son of God, as the King, as the Messiah. And how much more do we have today to interpret Jesus as the Messiah? We have the complete scriptures. We have God's word to us. We can look back and we can see how Jesus fulfilled prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament. We have biblical and extra-biblical documentation that attests to his life and his resurrection. We look back on the resurrection. They looked forward to it. 
We know that he was crucified, that he died, that he was buried. And we know from the attestation of scriptures, of eyewitness testimonies, of historical veracity, and from the conviction in our own hearts of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so today, we have all the signs that we need to point to Jesus as the Messiah. The question is, are you going to interpret the signs correctly? Or are you like the crowds, like the Pharisees, going to willfully reject the signs and thus ultimately reject the Messiah. Remember, Jesus came to bring division. The person of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, demand a response. How will you respond and how are you going to live the rest of your life in light of your response? And so today, we've seen Jesus as servant, as divider, as judge, and as Messiah. We know that because of his first coming, he is coming again. We know that our time here on earth is short. It's but a mist, a vapor that's here one second and gone the next. We know that one day we must stand before the king and give an account of our lives The question before us all is how are we going to live our lives? How is Jesus going to find you? Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is the last letter that he wrote before he was killed, before Paul was killed, and he tells Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Oh, would we be able to echo Paul here when we confront death. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's be a people who are resolved to live for the glory of Christ in the building of his eternal kingdom. Blessed is the one who trusts in Jesus as Messiah and who is found faithful when he returns or calls us home. Blessed is the one who will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, just thank you today for your word. It's a challenging one. It's, it's convicting, and at the same time, it's encouraging. There's beauty in it. There's a promise in it that the faithful will be served by you, Jesus, the master. There's a promise in it that we don't have to bear the weight of our sin, and you paid the cost. The judgment that we deserve was poured out on you. I pray that we would be a people who treasure that, who love that, who acknowledge that we've been brought out of darkness into light, that you would help us not to live for the world, to not have a divided lifestyle, but to be sold out for you and for your kingdom and for your glory. There's so much great promise that await us, eternal life, to be in relationship with you forever, to dwell with you bodily in glorified bodies in new heavens and new earth, free from sin, free from death, where there's no mourning nor crying anymore. In fullness of joy at your right hand, fullness of peace 
This is our beautiful and blessed assurance. Help us to be people who live in light of the salvation that you've given us, to be bold in our gospel proclamation, who live on mission, who take seriously the Great Commission, so that when we stand before you, at the end of all things, when you return or when you call us home, we will hear from you, well done, my good and faithful servant. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you all please stand as we sing a song of response?